0: Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. Gospel of Mark chapter 15. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we will bring one to you. You're going to need the text in front of you, whether it's digital or printed. So if you don't have a Bible or you don't have it on your phone, just slip up your hand and turn with us to the 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel. We have just three Sundays left, including this Sunday, in Mark's Gospel. And so after 63 Sundays, we have finally reached the summit, what I believe is the summit of Mark's gospel, the big climax. Each week, it's kind of been like we've been climbing higher and higher on this holy mountain, going further, further up in elevation. And, uh, and we've crossed over these 63 Sundays, especially since May, when we've been in the Lord's Passion, we've crossed some really deep and sacred realities in the Lord's Passion, but none is more important than than this. Today is our second and final week on the crucifixion of the Son of God, and that being said, there is a lot here, so I hope you've come spiritually hungry with your Bible open, and I hope you've come well caffeinated, and if you need that, I think we got some more back there. Okay? So let's begin by reading our text in its entirety. Uh, Remember where we are in the chain of events. Jesus has been hanging torturously on the cross since 9 o'clock that morning. Our text is going to pick up three hours later. It's now 12 in the afternoon. Okay? So pick up with me in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Iliai Iliai lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And let's stop there. You're going to find... In this short text, four strange events that are going to take place within these last three hours of Jesus' life. Four strange events. The first bizarre event is in verse 33. Let's look at that again. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So just get that scene in your head. Out of nowhere, this eerie darkness comes over the whole land while Jesus is hanging on the cross possibly wind and storm clouds that rolled in like in the middle of a sunny day. We've all had that experience. We don't know exactly how this phenomena took place, but what we do know is this. This darkness is a biblical sign of God's judgment hovering over the cross. When you read the Old Testament, that darkness is a symbolism for a hovering of judgment, and in this situation, hovering over the cross. Then in verse 34, uh, quickly jumps from noon to three in the afternoon. And now the chain of events are going to move very quickly. These are Jesus' last minutes. And so everything is going to speed up as he's hanging there under this strange weather. All of a sudden, Jesus lets out a terrifying cry in verse 34. Think about this. He's been virtually silent through this whole process, from his trials, from carrying the cross, from being mocked and abused, and even now hanging on the cross. What we just read is that the people misunderstand him and think that he's calling for Elijah. So they quickly run, and they give him a drink on a sponge in a sponge on a pole. And then out of nowhere, in verse 37, he lets out a final cry, and he gives his life but the story is not over there. What you see in the text is Mark's camera lens quickly jolts to the temple in Jerusalem at the moment of his death. That's verse 38. And then quickly zooms in, and we see the giant curtain of the temple torn in two. And then again, the camera jolts back to the cross, right after that happens, zooms in on the commanding officer, the centurion, in verse 39, the one who's just executed Jesus, and he says something that no one would have guessed in a million years. To quote him, he says, this man truly was the Son of God. All while, according to Matthew's gospel, at the moment of Jesus' death, an earthquake hits Jerusalem. This is a wild few minutes that happened so quickly, and I would argue this is the most important minutes that have ever passed on earth. What I want to do is go deeper into its theological meaning for you and me. What really happened there in a matter of minutes? The first is Jesus' cry from the cross. Mark 15, 34, English translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the moment when Jesus has taken on all the sin of the world as a sacrificial lamb. This is the scary moment when sin, all sin, is under the judgment of God under this dark, strange weather. This is when Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath against life-killing sin. This is the same cup that Jesus spoke about in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken on to himself the horror of all sin, all evil, and all of the world's madness. And so now he's under immense suffering. And worst of all, he's cut off from the one he calls Abba, God. This is a depth of pain and isolation no human being will ever know. The first theological insight to have is this. When the world suffers in pain and wonders where God is and if God cares, the answer is in the cross. God has taken on to himself completely all of our human sin and all of our human suffering. He knows what it is to be human and to take on sin and pain. And in this moment, all of the world's sin and pain. This is a deep mystery. Is God hiding when the world suffers tragedies? When the world suffers injustice like those in Israel now. When the world goes hungry, is God hiding? Does God even care as he blissfully hides away in the corners of heaven? The question that we get as Christians is, where is your God? And the answer is, he's on the cross, taking all of it onto himself and redeeming all of it for us. This is the first insight that we get at the foot of the cross. The second is to remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. If we could bring that to the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.19, I believe it is. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. A lot of times people have a theology that pits the Father against the Son. This is very clear. In Christ, God, Father, Son, and Spirit are reconciling the world to himself. And this is in reference to the cross. This means the entire triune God is active in this suffering and death on the cross. Father, Son, and Spirit were in that cry of pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a deep mystery. But it means this, God in Christ delivers God's self up to experience God's own wrath. Now that, that's a tongue twister. Let me say that again. God in Christ delivers God's self up to experience his own wrath. At the cross, God bears his own wrath against sin so that we don't have to. It's a wild thing. So that no human being has to be under that judgment. The Greek gods would never do this. The Hindu gods would never do this. And I can go down the line. To quote Karl Barth, one of the most influential theologians since the Reformers, he says, The judge has been judged in our place. What does this tell us about the God who sits in the heavens? It tells us that He is a God of great love, that He suffers on behalf of His children, that He sets His children free. God has taken on sin so completely and judged it so permanently that now all people in the world can be forgiven of their sin and embraced by God. As their Abba. Now, all people, no matter their background, can find the Almighty running to them like the Father runs to the prodigal son. Jesus tells the parable in Luke 15 to say, This is what God is like. All we do is repent. And believe in what God has done for us at the cross. It is God's gift to the world of complete grace. And anyone here today that's yet to believe in Christ, today is the day. You are hearing the gospel. So that's the first part of the mountain we're climbing this morning. The second strange event with great theological meaning for me and you, is found in verses 37 and 38. Again, I said, hope you're spiritually hungry and well caffeinated, all right? Here we go, verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I want to reflect on this. Interesting to note Since death by crucifixion is so incapacitating, most victims do not have the strength to speak at the end. And secondly, most victims hang on the cross for days, going in and out of consciousness, and die a very slow, extinguishing death. But notice how Jesus dies. He both speaks at the moment of his death, and he dies in only six hours. So any empirically minded person would understand that there's something more taking place here, believer or non-believer alike. And the reality here is that Jesus does not die as a victim involuntarily, but rather he voluntarily in this moment gives his life for the world. To quote him in Mark 10:45, he says ahead of time to the disciples, I will give my life. As a ransom for many. Luke and John's gospel accounts fill this in. They color it in. Mark is known to be very quick. He's just, you know, he's, you know, I don't know. He's like a hip-hop rapper or something. You know, he's just, I don't know. That's maybe not the best analogy. <laughs> you know, raps fast. Luke and John, just stick to the gospel, all right? <laughs> Stay in your lane. All right, I will. Luke and John's gospel, they they give you more color to what's happening here. And they quote Jesus in his final words, both, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So voluntarily laying down his life. And then John quotes him also as saying, to Tetelestai, it is finished right at the moment of giving up his life. It reads in John 19 30, after saying this, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And we, as thinking Christians, should ask, what is finished? Answer the final world sacrifice for sin. To quote his cousin John the Baptist, he says in John one twenty nine, when he sees Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Meaning no more lambs or goats are needed. Meaning the temple with its sin sacrifices are no longer needed. So much so that at the precise moment Christ gives his life, the temple curtain is torn in two. This is phenomenal. But it doesn't stop there. I want to say something that I believe is true and I believe is maybe interpreted as bold, but I believe it is biblical and I'm not the only one to say it. Not only has sacrifices ended, not only in this moment has the temple ended, but in this moment all religion has ended. In Jesus' own words, it is finished. Judaism is the one religion that God created and ordained to be a mediator between God and man. But what happens when God ends it himself? It was always, when you read the Old Testament, in God's mind, a temporary arrangement that had a great purpose, but one day it would be fulfilled and superseded by something even greater something far greater than religion. Relationship. Relationship. God created men and women to become his children and enjoy fellowship and relationship with him both now and forever. Let me explain a little bit further. The curtain of the temple that's ripped in two here was the protective barrier, Keyword between man and the innermost court of the temple called the Holy of Holies. This is where the glory of God was said to dwell on earth. And only one time a year at Yom Kippur could only one man enter into that glory. But now, at the moment of his death, the barrier between God's presence and man has been torn apart. God's glory is now being let loose on the earth for all people to enjoy. Not just one man once a year. Now anyone in any place, geographically or spiritually, with any background, can through Jesus draw near to the living and loving presence of God. You no longer need the regiment or the restrictions or the good structures of religion to be in relationship with God. Now, through Christ and in his local church, one can enjoy the presence and glory of the Almighty. And we are a testimony to that. You find in Hebrews 10, I told you this is an important few minutes. You find in Hebrews 10, the author identifying the new temple curtain as Jesus's body. Which is a profound thing to say. The imagery is that now we walk through Jesus not the temple curtain into the holy of holies into the presence of God. Here in these last few minutes the world goes from religion to relationship, from temple to person. Meaning that there is not One more important person to be in relationship than with Jesus Christ. Billions of people have found in the church and through its practices ways to spiritually be in dynamic relationship with this living Christ. Through the word, through prayer, through service, through community. Everyone we know and love, anyone you see on a given day, tomorrow, Monday, where do you go, what do you do? Every person you see was made to live their lives in relationship to God. And now Christ has made the way for that to happen. To quote him, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I know in certain terms, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so I say again, anyone here today that's yet to believe in this Christ, today is the day to believe. The final strange event with great theological meaning for me and you is found in verse 39. And when the centurion... Who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Did you know that this is the first time out of the last 15 chapters, 63 Sundays or so? My math isn't great, but somewhere around there. This is the first time we've read in Mark's gospel that someone confesses Jesus as the son of God. It took 15 chapters. Literally, no one up until this point has recognized him as God's son. They've recognized him as other things, but not as God's son. God himself even calls Jesus his son in Mark's Mark's account. God speaks supernaturally and audibly from the heavens at Jesus' baptism and when Jesus is on the mountain at his transfiguration. He calls him my beloved son. We've read even the demons that are cast out have screamed, he is the son of God. But up until this point, with this soldier, commanding officer, not a single human being has recognized who he really is. Mark starts his gospel this way. Probably harder to remember because it was about 63 Sundays ago. But turn back in your Bibles to Mark 1, verse 1. Mark 1, verse 1. And you see that Mark begins his gospel by saying who Jesus is. It reads this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, You have to understand what Mark is doing here. He's not just giving a nice little introduction to, you know, 16 chapters. He's doing something deeply subversive here, and I'll explain. Rome is still in power when he writes this gospel, and it starts to circulate around the Mediterranean world, and it certainly got back to Rome where the infamous Nero is Caesar. When this is published, Nero, one of the worst emperors ever, is Caesar. Now look closely at the opening verse of Mark's gospel. He uses two phrases here. And these are two phrases that the Roman Empire was already using. The two are gospel. The Roman Empire used that word. And the second is son of God. They used that word. Caesar was given the title son of God. They had this entire religious mythology where they divinized their emperor's To the status of God's son. They would call Caesar Augustus God's son, the son of God. And to the Romans, God's Roman son is the true Lord ruling the world as its messianic figure, bringing peace and salvation to all the nations. Pax Romana. They literally believed this, it's what justified their conquest of the world. They believed that they were spreading salvation to all the world, peace to all the world through their law and order, through much of their oppression, through their enlightening of culture with Roman, Greek, economic uh, flourishing, so on and so forth. And all of this happened through their Messiah, Caesar. Does this not sound familiar? A Messiah bringing salvation and peace to all the world. They had a false divine son. And Mark starts things off with a bang by calling them out for it. Mark 1 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, and no, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is God's son, not Caesar. Can you imagine when I got back to Rome? Jesus is the true uh, Lord of the world and its true Messiah. He gives the world its salvation and everlasting peace, not Caesar. Just to be quite frank, in my mind, when I understood this in my American English, Mark is flipping them off right at the beginning. I mean, he is. Right at the beginning, he's being incredibly bold with them. He's subverting all the beliefs of the Romans and its entire power structure to say, hey, if you want to know where the true source of life is found, it's not in Caesar, it's in Jesus Christ. Caesar and all other human systems and beliefs today will in the end be incomplete and often fail you. Only Christ will deliver on his promises to the world. Not the peace of Rome, but the peace of the kingdom through the gospel. Gospel was another thing the Romans used. You see it in Mark 1.1. It literally means good news. The beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Romans would use this for major events. The birth of the emperor's son, the future Caesar, Or a big military victory, they would use this word gospel, good news. And this is exactly what Mark is doing here. He's saying the 16 chapters that you're about to read of this inspired account are the true gospel, the true good news of the world. That this is the event that changes everything. Not not the gospel of Caesar, the son of Augustus, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God a victory he believes has been won on the world stage at the cross that everyone must know about the victory of god's kingdom do you know who is the first person to recognize that jesus is god's son and not caesar one of caesar's caesar's own commanding officers We just read it in Mark 15. I'll read it again. And when the centurion, that's a commanding officer, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A Roman soldier's, just to clue you in here, his allegiance to the emperor was expected to be absolute. He's risking not only his career, but his life by making such a confession. Treason. Of all people, too, this brutal and violent man, responsible for overseeing Jesus' torturous execution, no telling how many nasty crucifixions he's performed, much less this man, the commanding officer, did not stop his soldiers from mocking and abusing Jesus. From all accounts, he's a violent man hardened by war. And he's just gotten done crucifying the Lord. Meaning this, he is the most unlikely of all candidates to utter the first Christian confession of faith. And yet he does. This is exactly the point. Now, because of the cross... No man is too far from God. Now, no man, regardless of their past, is denied access to the Almighty. Not even the one who's just violently crucified Him in the very next moment. He's allowed by the grace of God to make a confession of faith. This is mind-boggling. Now no man is beyond forgiveness, even the one that just crucified the Lord of glory. Now no man is barred from seeing the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This officer is the first, and he's the first of many. Billions since this moment at the foot of the cross have now echoed these words Of faith. Truly, this man is the Son of God. I remember uttering those at 18 for the first time. The question for the world is who is this man, Jesus Christ? That is the question upon every soul. Who is he? What does he stand for? Is he telling the truth? Did he do what he said he did? Truly, this man is the son of God. Now, all men and women are invited to meet God at the cross of Christ after this first meeting. This is now the new meeting place for God and man. It's not a temple. It's not a religion, but faith. Faith found at the foot of the cross. Again, it says, seeing him die in this way he believed. And so I'll say again, anyone here today that is yet to believe in this Christ, today is the day of belief. I'll close with this. We're sitting here in a long lineage of men and women who've gone before us. This forgiven Roman soldier being the first. We owe these men and women, such a debt of gratitude for confessing their faith, for sharing their faith with others, and for passing down their faith to the next generation. Now we, Grace Athens amongst all the churches in this region and the world, we now get to pick up the torch and do the same. We now hear our assignment in Athens, Oconee, get to fight the fight for the next generation to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that, to quote Matt earlier, by many ways, but the way we do it together as a community is by building up his church so that it becomes truly a center and sender for the kingdom of God, whereby people can gather here and in house churches to hear this gospel and believe And whereby we can send people out from here week after week to make this gospel known. And all of this begins at the glorious cross. Hallelujah and amen.